Scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners on the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But 
God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then. They asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm Pastor at Emmanuel. Very glad to be with you all this morning. Today I'm going to talk about holiness. And I wonder uh, what impression the word holy makes on you. Is it a confusing word? Do you not understand it? Is it a scary word? Uh, is it a, a strange word? Is it a word that has become common for you and you don't think a lot about? Uh, so here, here's how I want to begin. I want to begin by asking you to think of what is a holy 
person to look like. Just imagine in your mind, whatever comes to your mind, imagine a holy individual. And then this is a little bit unusual for us. We, we, we tend not to be that interactive, but I'm wondering if maybe two or three people would unmute and briefly share a, a brief description of maybe somebody that you picture. Is there anybody that's willing to do that to just uh, share with us what you imagine when you picture a holy person? I'll imagine, I'll imagine someone who is kind and loving and never sin. Okay. Kind, loving, never sin. Thank you, Shin. What about somebody else? I'd imagine like a priest. Hmm. Yep. Maybe one other? Yes. Somebody said Jesus? <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. So, so, you know, lots of different pictures that we would have. Um, but most pictures are, are not an ordinary person. So even actually, uh, Sting, her, her, her description was, was maybe an ordinary person, but, but a person of extraordinary character, loving. A priest, maybe, maybe a priest is an ordinary person, but with a special uniform, or maybe you're picturing one of the big bearded Orthodox priests. And of course, Jesus, the picture of a holy person. I don't know how you imagine Jesus, but a lot of people imagine him with a big beard and a flowing robe and off in the wilderness. And, and those are the kinds of images that come to mind when we think of holiness, we, we don't think of an ordinary person. We think of somebody extraordinary. And, 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 I, and I wonder if we talked more, how many of you imagined maybe some unusual people, some people that were a bit weird, a bit strange, if that would have been possible as well. When we think of holiness, uh, maybe we think of moral purity, maybe we think of religious fervor. The word holy, it, it, a simple definition of it, is that it means separate or apart. And so when we speak of God, we speak of God as holy because God is utterly unique. So God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it, but he's not himself created. He's not to be identified with anything in the world, which is why we don't worship anything that's been made. Uh, but that uniqueness, what do we do with that? That God is before all things and above all things and God is morally pure and God is all of these things. Uh, when we think of God's holiness, maybe it's more than we can grasp. And, and because God is so unique, maybe it raises the question for us, actually, is holiness something we should pursue? If holiness is about uniqueness and being separate, um, would it be right to, to pursue that when, when that's uniquely God's? <laughs> and yet the Christian life is an invitation to life with God. And part of that is to be set apart, to be separated, to actually move from, from a common, ordinary, mundane existence to life with God, where, where now there's something separate, which, which then assumes a higher standard. But I want to talk today about what, what is that higher standard. But on this question, should you be pursuing holiness? One question for you is, well, what else should you be pursuing? So we pursue happiness. We pursue wealth. We pursue careers. We pursue relationships. We pursue comfort. There's lots of things we pursue, lots of good things. Uh, but, but is holiness to be pursued as well? Well, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you, what's he saying? He's, he's saying, don't seek an ordinary life. Don't, don't make money the main thing you go after, or fame, or, or, or accomplishment. He's saying, seek God. Um, look to the one who is set apart, and, and when you put your life in that direction, then, yeah, go after happiness. Try to have a good career. 
but these things then don't become the things you're devoted to. And so the pursuit of holiness is a worthy pursuit, but it can be confusing. What are we talking about? Is this about making us weird, unusual? Uh, what does it mean to live an uncommon life? And I, I'm beginning with that language of common because uh, we're now finishing this short series on redemptive stories where we're looking at individuals in the Bible who encounter God in a way that changes the trajectory of their lives. And today we're looking at Cornelius. And what is the change in Cornelius's life? There may be a number of ways to look at it, but one of the things that we see is his life moves from common to holy. And I want to begin with the language of common. We see Peter in his vision. So Peter, God shows something Peter, and Cornelius is going to be an important piece in helping Peter understand this, which then makes this whole scene not just a story about Cornelius, but actually a climactic moment in the Bible where, where a, new dawn, a new era is coming in about God's generosity to all people. So this is quite a profound story. But as we're focusing on the people in the story, Peter gets this vision, um, and, and Peter has shown all sorts of animals that, that as a faithful Jew, some he would have categorized as clean and unclean. Some you eat, some you don't eat. Some you offer in sacrifices, some you don't. And, and Peter is told to kill and eat, and he seems to think this is a temptation. I shouldn't do that because the law forbids me. But God is showing him something new, that this is not a vision about animals. Uh, and so in verse 14, Peter says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So, so he's understanding the vision in a limited way, whereas God is going to show him this is a, about something far more profound. But in verse 15, the voice came to him again, saying a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so we're going to begin with that word common. Now, I'm also, by the end of this, we'll talk a little bit about the language of being clean because they go together in this conception. But Cornelius is common. He's a Roman soldier. He's an ordinary guy, yet he's devout. But by the end of this, God does something that changes him, that recategorizes him, that brings renewal to him. And that's what we're going to talk about. And so today I want to talk about three things as we talk about uh, God's redemptive work and how it shifts us from common to holy. And it's going to involve a shift in how we view God. It's going to involve a, a shift in how we live before God and also a shift in how we are repurposed by God. So I'm going to begin with how we view God. What is it that, that marks Cornelius out, even as a common person? Because in the common, ordinary world, life in the world as we know it, Cornelius is pretty good. He's a centurion, which means that he's, he's over a group of Roman soldiers. So he's probably a pretty competent bright, hardworking guy. He's a guy that has sufficient wisdom to know how things are going. But what distinguishes him from the biblical perspective is his character and his actions. He's a commendable individual where, where maybe more than a common person, he demonstrates that he's not just competent professionally, but he's competent in, in the, the godly categories of the Bible. And so the description in verse two is Cornelius is a devout man who feared God with all his household, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And so what do we know about a person? We look at their actions. We look at what they do. And here are two things that are, are highlighted. He gives alms generously. So when there's somebody who's poor or somebody who's in need or somebody who's stuck, uh, he shares. He's, he's a person of action, a person of compassion. He's somebody who helps. He's honorable. But he also prays. He's religious. And so here it talks about him praying at a certain hour, which means he's not just a guy who talks to God, but, but he has a devotional or religious life. 
And I suspect most of us, when we think of holiness, those are two primary categories, moral. Does somebody act uprightly or religious? Does somebody do religious things? Do they have a devout life? And that's our normal picture of holiness. And, and certainly holiness is about morality. Holiness is about a devoted life before God. Uh, but we easily fall into a more narrow, truncated view of holiness that then uh, has a misunderstanding. Holiness begins, the, the, the best beginning for a Christian looking at the Bible is to begin with God's holiness before we think of ours. And you realize God's holiness is moral and it involves worship and religious practices, but it's so much more than that. What is it that marked out Cornelius? The things that we would say commend him is he gives alms and he prays. But this passage sets it up to say, but there's something more to him. In verse two, when it says he's a devout man who feared God, that gives a window into what we can't see. And we never know with somebody what their attitude is, what their beliefs are, but, but how we view God, what we believe about God, has a profound influence on the choices we make, how we experience life, how we interpret reality, which is why a study of the Bible and a study of God is meant to, to renew us, to, to change us. And so God invites us, though he's holy and separate and apart and unlike us, he invites us to become like him rather than our trying to bring God into our common world to, so that we could understand him, which then becomes a misunderstanding. If you go through the Old Testament leading up to the time of Cornelius, the category of fearing God is a profound category. Um, and, and what's helpful about this passage is, is his fear of God seems somewhat ordinary. It's in his actions. He sees a person who is in need and he helps them. It's the time to pray and he prays. He, he doesn't come across as a mystic. He doesn't come across as a holy man. He doesn't come across as a radical. And yet, an angel appears to him. So he has this mystical experience. And there's a word there that shows this is not part of his ordinary prayer life. An angel appears and it says he's terrified. So he's terrified because now something's happening he wasn't expecting, he couldn't control, it's blowing his mind. But the word terrified, his experience with the angel, and the word fear, his experience before God, are not the same word. And so, yes, fear can carry terror. If, if all of a sudden God showed up to to have us given accounting for our life, we might be terrified, or if we stood in his presence and saw his majesty. But the fear of God is more about an attitude towards God's holiness. God is not like us. He is perfect in all his ways. He is powerful and he is wise. And that informs how we live before him. And so what is it that made Cornelius somebody who gave to the poor? What is it somebody uh, that made him consistent in prayer? Now, there could be a lot of different things. I don't know. But a clue in this passage is what went on in his heart and mind. He feared God. He had an understanding that, that God was extraordinary. And somehow his life was trying to get in tune with that. So his, his care of the poor was not just about a self-serving moral capacity. How can I be better? How can I be better than others? How can I live so I get a reward? It's naturally how we think. It wasn't just about religious devotion. But it was about what does it look like if, if you fear this God? What does this God require of you? And so that shapes him and changes him. And therefore, what we, what we would assume, and I don't know about Cornelius and what he thought and what his attitude towards everything was, but this idea of God's holiness includes that God is wise and God is personal. And so, so you don't earn God's favor by giving to the poor. You don't earn God's obligation by being consistent in your devotional life. But it would be impossible to do those things without assuming that God is personal. And that's the, the Christian biblical view of God, that he's holy, he's powerful, he's wise, he's 
broader than we could fathom, and yet he's engaged in our world, and therefore care for the poor is meaningful, not just as a moral act, but as, as life with God. Prayer is meaningful, not just as religious duty, but as life with God. And so when we fear God, we find that things work out like they do here, which in verse 4, what would have been a consistent life for Cornelius, now I don't know how long, it could have been six months, it could have been 10 years, I have no idea. But, but Cornelius has been persistent in, in this, devo this devoted life. And then he gets this message, verse four, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And as Cornelius himself recounts to Peter in verse 30, uh, he says the message of the angel was, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. That's what marks a Christian life of holiness, which is not simply that we need to live in an uncommon way before a holy God, but, but God's holiness includes his goodness, his care. And, and what we get is that, that Cornelius was seen and heard and cared for. And he didn't do it, presumably, for those things. And look, he's an imperfect person. Maybe he did, like many of us. We can have a right theology, but, but something gets twisted in there. But this is a helpful reminder because uh, this is a time where we're in the pandemic. Every few months, things change. And I think February, March, we were all in high alert, high anxiety, and, and there, there's an adrenaline that comes from that, that you rise to that. What are we supposed to do? And now here we are six months in and we're tired. We're tired of our whole lives being on the computer. We're tired of the shutdown. And, and, and part of the tiredness is, is the, the unknown future. If we knew that it was one more month, we can do it. But every time school gets delayed, every time that, you know, there's new reports, we don't know what's happening. And so, so how do you continue caring for the poor generously? Uh, how do you continue praying? And, and I wonder for, for how many of you, I wonder how your prayer life is doing. I, I suspect for some of you, your prayer life has come alive because of desperation, because of need. I suspect for more of us, our prayer lives have become more of a struggle because we're tired. And how do you keep going when God is out there, but, but we don't see God acting here? What is God doing in the monotony and the mundaneness of the, of the tragedy of, of all that's going wrong and a little is signaling that much is going right. What do we do? And it's this fear of God that keeps us going, which is to say, well, God sees, and therefore praying is not futile. I wonder how many of you have wondered, like, why bother praying? It doesn't do anything. But if we're called to a holy life, prayer is not as technological and pragmatic as, our, as things in our common world are. There's something more profound. Why bother caring for the poor? Uh, if in this pandemic we're going to go on, you know, if people are going to be poor, for poverty is going to increase. Why be generous? Well, that's a common way of thinking of things. But if you revere God, you have a different attitude. There's a book on holiness that I was reading uh, by a Catholic uh, philosopher named Peter Kreeft. I haven't read the whole thing, so I don't know that I could strongly um, endorse it. But I, I quite liked a lot of what I read. And he said something that I thought was apt for our time. Uh, this is what Peter Kreef wrote. He said, spectacular heroism, even martyrdom, is easy. The daily grind is hard. Many can respond to emergencies heroically. Few can keep up their charity day to day, especially when no one notices. That is why picking up a scrap of paper for the love of God can be more of a proof of sanctity than martyrdom. Now, I think I'm a, I initially struggled with that quote because he says, martyrdom and spectacular heroism is easy and those things are not easy for me <laughs> but i think i know what he's saying which is that we will rise through our adrenaline through the moment because we can do something great if the end is in sight and if it, if there's purpose in it 
But the ongoing, enduring loving when it's hard, when it's not rewarding, praying and being devoted to God when it doesn't seem to be that God is under our control or under our understanding. And yet a truly holy life has a different theology. God is not our servant. God is not on our beck and call. God may be wiser than simply to answer every particular thing we demand that he does. And so is part of the holy life enduring faithfully and saying, if God is set apart, I won't be the common person who just gives up and starts to think of myself, but, but I will persist in seeking after God and I will keep giving and I will keep praying and I won't tire because I'm not seeking first happiness and I'm not seeking first accomplishment. But I'm seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. And if I'm seeking that, I'm trusting he's going to give me those other things. And so is your theology such that God's holiness sustains you? We need to think about this because right now many of us are faltering. So here's, a, here's another question as we shift from a common life to growing towards a, a holy life, a godly life. Uh, here's a second thing. It's going to change how we live before God. And so if we understand that, that God's ways are not our ways and, and we keep seeking after God, it means that in the monotony or in the, the extreme moment that calls for heroism, whatever it is, we're going to live differently, but, but here's one of the key things that we're going to need for a holy life is we're going to need faith. We're going to need to trust God. And we find that with both Peter in this story, who's been an, he's an apostle, he's been with Jesus, he's been a devout Jew, and he doesn't understand what's going on. And things are not happening according to his timeline, and there's awkwardness and all sorts of things for him. But we see this for Cornelius, who, who, who has sought after God and has learned so much, and he's gotten his life together, and, and yet... Here he's put in another situation where he doesn't know what's going on. So I want to look at that because a life of holiness is a life of living by faith, which means if God is holy and we are not, we can't control God. We can't know all things. And yet we're not to, to tire and to give up. We're to keep pursuing and, and going after God. Uh, and we see that. So Peter has this vision of all these animals coming down into something like a sheet. I mean, that, how else do you describe this vision? I, it's hard to imagine exactly what Peter saw. But, but Peter doesn't understand it. He thinks it's a temptation because the command is kill and eat. And so, so the word comes to him three times to confirm you haven't misunderstood. So he doesn't leave the dreams thinking it said kill and eat. Maybe it said something, he said something different. He understood the message, but he doesn't understand what it means. Am I supposed to eat differently? Um, but then he's told these guys are coming for you. Go with them. But he's not told why. And that seems to trouble him because these guys show up. Uh, and here's, here's Peter's experience verse 17 he's inwardly perplexed he just saw this thing and it's not simply that he under, doesn't understand it but he, he's grappling he's troubled so here's peter who saw the transfiguration of jesus so he had an experience of the mystical this didn't terrify him like it terrified cornelius but it confused him what, what is god showing me uh, but in verse 21 these guys come and he says what is the reason for your coming so god told me to go with you but i have no idea why and they don't answer. Well, Cornelius sent for you, so he goes. And then, and then he shows up in verse 29. This is repeated. So, so why have you called for me? And, and, and Peter doesn't have the pieces. He has a vision. He has a message to bring. He has people to go to. He's been summoned by God. But he has to step out, and he doesn't know why. And it's only as the story unfolds, along with what God is doing in Cornelius's life and what God is doing more broadly in the world, that Peter starts to realize he's got this one piece but that's Cornelius' experience as well. So he knows, as most people do, you want to get your life together 
two great places to start. Start praying. You know, shut your eyes and start speaking to God. Realize there's something bigger than just you and your dreams. Anybody would know that. Give to the poor. Have compassion. When people are suffering, be generous. Most of us would know that. Give yourself to a moral life. Cornelius is doing what's obvious and good, but, but now he's been commanded to send for somebody and he doesn't know what this guy's going to say. So Peter shows up at his house um, and, and all of a sudden in this interaction where, where the spirit comes and all of a sudden Peter realizes in verses 34 and 35, he gets it. Truly, I understand God shows no partiality. That's this message. But in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So the food was not about what you should or shouldn't eat. It was a picture of what God is doing now that Jesus has come. And it's not until Peter hears from Cornelius that he understands that. But, but he goes to Cornelius in verse 33. Cornelius, poor Cornelius, awkward, confused. He, he falls at Peter's feet. Um, Peter embarrassed. is like, look, don't worship me. I'm a human being. Stand up. But, but he's, he himself is still wondering, I don't know why I'm here. But, but I'm not here so you can worship me. Cornelius has now had an encounter with the divine and wonders, you know, what do I do before his messenger? This is new territory. Peter says, well, you don't worship me. But what Cornelius had right, verse 33, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so, so Cornelius is so profound because he and his household is devout that the angel appears to him and he, he assembles all these people with him, which is, which is now a reminder, if you read chapter 11, Peter gets challenged on this and, and God unfolds this. So the vision is coming to various people and there are all these witnesses and the spirit comes to these people in the same way it came to the Jews in Acts 2. This is a grand confirmation to make clear God's vision is far broader than anyone ever imagined. The gospel is far greater news than Peter himself understood, an apostle, an appointed witness. Cornelius himself didn't know, so he says, I've assembled these people because I want to hear from God. And that shows when, when, when it talks about the, the heart of Cornelius who feared God, he wasn't just a guy pursuing a moral life, giving alms. He wasn't just a guy doing religious things because that's what you do, praying. But in his fear of God, what was his eagerness? His eagerness in verse 33 is, I want to know what God has to say. And so that attitude that he has, seeking after God, shows how he lives. And, and this, again, is part of the life of faith. You have Peter, an apostle, but you have Cornelius, an ordinary common guy, trying to live a better life. He's trying to be moral. He's trying to be religious. But more than that, he wants it to be thorough from the inside. And so he fears God, and he's, he's seeking to hear from God. He doesn't know what God is going to say. And... These stories are so wonderful because we see the pieces come together that show us that God is always doing something more than we understand. God sees, God hears, God cares. And here's this message, Cornelius, these prayers, these, these deeds you have done have come as a memorial. God has heard, God has seen you, God has remembered, he's brought to mind. He doesn't forget his people. Your actions are never in vain. But today... God gives you the next installment, and, and here you are, not understanding. So, so now I know that God hears and sees, but, but I don't understand what God has to say. And, and that, too, I think in a sharpened way is where many of us are at, because, look, this is a gathering of the church. We're all over the place. Some of us are really committed. Some of us have deep understanding. Some of us are brand new to Christianity. Some of you may not even know what you believe or, or, or may be resistant to Christianity. 
you know, as a church, our goal is to say, well, well, we, we don't want a common life. We, we want to hear from God. And, and we want our lives not just to be moral, but we want them to be moral plus more than moral. We don't just want to have religious devotion, but we want to fear God. We're looking for something real. We're looking to seek God and his kingdom first. And yet that becomes a, a source of frustration because how do we make sense of what's going on? Why on earth is there this pandemic? Why is there social upheaval? Why are we seeing the sins of our society at a time when we can't fix anything? Um, and the question we should be asking in the church is, well, what does God have to say about any of this? It doesn't matter what other people are saying. We want to know what God has to say. And now we're pretty much into this pandemic. And I think we're all saying, I don't know. Yeah, he's teaching me lessons. He's showing me things. But, but we have a piece of the truth. Well, God wants you to be moral and honorable. Give alms, be generous, care for the poor. He wants you to stay devoted, continue to pray. Do we believe God sees us? Do we believe that our, our upright life counts now, that if we persist in, in honoring God, that it counts for something? We should. But will it control the future? Will we understand why God is calling us to do certain things? And it's that dynamic of life where God is holy. But, but in Christian theology, unlike other religious ideas where, where God is out there and all we have is commandments, we have God who is out there, but God who sees and cares and, and, and calls us to walk with him. It's really hard to do when you don't know what's going on. And so a lot of us are saying, God, what are you doing? Tell us what to think and believe. And we have his word and we pray in the spirit. But in our confusion, we find ourselves, uh, many of us thinking, I don't know. So, so what do you do? You keep on giving alms, being generous, praying. But the life of faith is an expectant life, which is to say at the end of the day, the world may show us that it's more terrible than we ever imagined. And so we're not naive. Things could get worse. But Christian hope says, but at the end of the day, the wisdom of God will always show that he's doing something in my life. He's doing something in our church. He's doing something in our city, but he's doing something around the globe. He's doing something of a cosmic scale that in the end of the days will show the frailty and the imperfection of humanity, but the glory and the wisdom of God. And so how do we live? If you want to grow in holiness... <laughs> You'll live trusting that this God who's unlike us is good and he sees and he hears and he cares, but he's always going to do something in our lives that's bigger than what we understand. And so that's an uncomfortable place for those of us who want to control things. But don't give up praying. Don't give up faithful obedience. That's how we're to live. And so here's the last thing, which is to say that, that the, the move from common to holy is about a repurposing and and this is about an understanding of how we're repurposed by God. See, a common life has its own purposes. And, and a working class view is, look, you just have a job where you make your family and you can retire. You make your money, you take care of your family, you retire. Maybe the white collar thing is you have to achieve and have some kind of success. Maybe the social justice thing is we need to change the world for the better. We have all these aspirations. All of them make sense in their own way, in their own common way. But God repurposes us for something bigger that, that in the end includes all of these honorable things to the degree that they're honorable. But it's something much bigger, and it's a call out of a common life to say there's more than just money. There's more than just success. There's more than just solving today's pandemic. But you give yourself to those things as you're pursuing something uncommon, something greater. And so Cornelius is described by Peter, categorized by Peter as common. And in biblical categories, that includes unclean. Now, unclean sounds like a very offensive word. 
but unclean in the original sort of what well, you read the book of Leviticus, for example, talks just about common and uncommon. In the same way that uh, what was a tradition 25, 50 years ago, people had different sets of plates. So today Jews will have kosher plates that, you know, for different purposes. Well, everybody had different plates. You had your common china and your wedding china, your, your common plates. And so you would have these very expensive dishes that when your kids' friends come over to watch TV uh, and eat while they're watching TV and you make a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, you don't put it on the fine wedding china because these kids will get up and, and, and break it or you don't want it to, to be run through the dishwasher to, to wear it down. But on a holiday, on Christmas, you don't bring out paper plates. And, and so, so it has a different purpose. And, and it's not, you know, okay, the, 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 the plates have, are, are, are more expensive, more carefully made. Um, but with that comes a, a different sense of, of when you use them and don't. And so common and uh, clean and unclean in the Bible, sometimes it wasn't a moral thing. If there was a dead body and you touched the dead body, you became unclean, not because you were sinful in your judgment, but because categorically now you've, you've touched, you, you, you're in tune with the very nature of this common world, the world where death is common and or extraordinary. And yet by Jesus's day, there was more of a sense of needing to be separated as Israel had failed and now they're under the Roman Empire um, where being unclean really was tied to being moral. And, and, and that is part of being unclean, is there's immorality. And yet the common life, that, the life that we inherit is both ordinary, where we're in touch with our world, but it also involves immorality, a sense in which no matter how we're trying to do good, we all fail because in our hearts we don't fear God, but we revere ourselves. We fear people. And so Cornelius is fighting commendably that reality. He's trying to live a better life, but he's still categorized, according to Peter's understanding of the Bible, as common. And yet Peter shows up and he realizes this vision tells him the message he has. Mind-blowing for Peter. As a 21st century Christian, we can't fathom how mind-blowing this is. But again, read chapter 11 tonight, and you find that Peter's community didn't believe this really happened. They argue with him. Wait a second. The message about our Messiah, our Savior, is for people more than just us, just our people, just the people like us. And it's this remarkable thing that Peter shows up, and that's what he sees as the Spirit is present. He realizes, I've been sent. I didn't know why Cornelius called for me. It's not that Cornelius called for me. It's that God has sent me to announce the peace of Jesus Christ. And that's where he begins. Jesus has come to make peace between the common and the holy, the, the unclean and the perfect, that humanity is separated from God in this common world. And, and God's apostle, his messenger, comes to announce peace. And it's his message about Jesus, the one who comes and this is the remarkable Christian story, whereas God doesn't stand outside of us giving the rules, say, if you keep them, you'll make your way high enough that you will enter my presence. But all of you have gone your own way. You live a very common life that has become an unclean life. And so what I will do is I will become like you. And that's the incarnation. We never become like God in all of our striving. In Jesus Christ, God becomes like us. And he walks among us to bring peace, to bring reconciliation. And this passage, the message that Peter has is a message of God who comes and he suffers death. And death in the world of clean and unclean is to bear the penalty, to be set aside as unworthy, to be treated as one to be destroyed, to be condemned. And what we're told is God raises him up, vindicates him to say, but he is not unworthy. He is joined with the common 
and now he has been raised so that the common will join with him and become holy. And so in verse 43, Peter's words in this summary that we have in Acts to Cornelius, to him, Jesus, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And most of us are trying to, to take our common lives and make them extraordinary. We, we want better, but we can't get around the moral component or the religious component. And when we try in that regard, we find that we fail. We, we're never good enough. There's an uncleanness. And, and one of the things about sin, the way the Bible talks about it, is it, is it we experience it different. It, it affects us differently, but, but a common experience is to feel unclean and and you do something that you know is wrong, and it's not simply that you regret it. It's not simply that you fear the consequences of it. But, but so often there's a sense of feeling, feeling dirty, unworthy. And the nature of our sin in the world is, it doesn't have to be us who sins. When others sin, it makes us feel unclean. There's something about the nature of immorality. And when people have sinned against us, we could be, have been utterly upright, but the odd nature of things is it leaves us feeling unclean. It's, it's, it's that nature of reality that the common world is a world where we struggle feeling unclean. When Peter comes and says, I now realize that what Jesus came and did for his people, he did for the whole world. And now the announcement of the forgiveness of sins goes to everyone. People are not necessarily walking around saying, I'm trying to be moral, but I'm not good enough. But deep inside all of us, there's this fear, not a fear of God out of reverence, but there's a fear that if we're ever really seen, we're not good enough. We will be condemned. The announcement of peace that comes from the forgiveness of sins says here that Jesus Christ has uniquely done something. This is something only he offers. That he doesn't simply make the common his people, but he makes the unclean clean. And so the forgiveness of sins comes to this message that Peter has uh, where he says in verse 15, what God has made clean do not call common. And that's his realization. Cornelius was a common man, but a great man. But he was great within a common system. But if the gospel goes to him, he is no longer common because God has made him clean. He's forgiven his sins, his sins against our own people. How's that for an announcement of peace? And so as the message is being announced, the word is being proclaimed. That's what Cornelius wants. I want the word of God Cornelius, Peter comes, I'm an apostle, I alone. <laughs> Me and the other apostles have the word of God. He brings the word in verse 44, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear the word. This is not about Cornelius having been righteous. This is not about Peter having been simply a religious figure. This is about a work that God is doing that's bigger than either of them. The word is announced, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear the word. And why am I talking about the transition from common to holy? Well, Peter's vision is to learn that Cornelius was common, but he, but he understood Cornelius different. The description of the spirit that God gives to Cornelius, the same spirit he gave to his own people, it's the Holy Spirit. This is not about spirituality. This is not about new age thinking. This is about the spirit of God who is not in man, but God's gift. And that's verse 45. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out. It's not that Cornelius earned God's favor and is receiving a reward. It's that in his fear of God, he listened and God came into his life and he made him 
an uncommon person. He poured his Holy Spirit into his life and he cleaned him. That's the time. And that's what we need, which is that in our struggles, it's not that we are going to work our way to the point where God finds us acceptable. It's not that we're going to hear the message in such a way. It's that we, we give ourselves to, our, to the fear of God to listen, and we hear that the word, empowered by the Spirit, doesn't simply open our eyes to see that God is greater than we imagined and his plan is bigger than we, we could have imagined, but that God cleanses us, which, which one of the reasons that we see we don't trust in our righteousness is to guard against our arrogance. Don't think that you're better than others, but it also guards against the sin of our world to say, don't think that the wickedness of others also defines you. And here's what he says. He says, well, it doesn't matter what people call you. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Let no one be called common that God has made clean. That's verse 15. And the good news is because God has sent Jesus to become sin. We who are sinful become the righteousness of God, which means it's by faith that we trust that if God's spirit is working in us, we are being made holy. So holiness is not about getting yourself morally together. It's not about living a religious life. It's about believing the word of God and living by the spirit God has put in you, which will mean you will live a generous moral life and you will devote yourself to walking with God. But it's a change in paradigm. And as I think of paradigm shifts, it's interesting. I think as, as I look at the way stories are being told today, uh, there's a shift as people I think are getting I think secularism is wearing people down, this ordinary technological world that no longer has meaning. What we used to do to try to find meaning in the 20th, 20th century, we've gotten rid of God, but how do we still have meaning, has shifted in the 21st century. And I want to talk about two different kinds of ways that we tell story, and both are still present today. But I think one will help us understand, at least for today, what a vision for holiness could look like. The first is the Disney kind of story, where there's a princess story, a story that's extraordinary, not like our ordinary stories. And in our ordinary lives, we, we want to hear about something better. We still do that. We still watch shows about people that are better than us. But then you go to Disneyland and we want these characters, these individuals who, who have been dressed up in, in extraordinary clothes. They have these fancy elaborate costumes. So they don't look like ordinary people, but they look magical. And apparently my understanding is, is Disney as, as, a, as, a, as an employer has these very strict rules for the behavior of their people. So it's not simply that you need to act like Belle or, you know, one of these Disney figures. Um, but when you close the door, you then don't start, you don't get out of character and start complaining about the people. Because what if that six-year-old girl that dreamed of meeting a princess gets a photo with you, you close the door, and you don't know that she hears you say, oh, man, I can't wait till five o'clock till I could get off of work and go home and drink a few beers. You've shattered her illusion. See, see, that's our vision. That's, our, that's how we, we approach life in this world. There's got to be something better. And so let's create it. Let's create it with this way that's larger than life. And it, it's not real. And we know it's not real. But let's come up with these very strict rules to have uh, to make sure that we don't blow the cover. And that's a lot of what modern moralism looks like. How do we come up with these very strict rules to make us feel like we've risen above, we're better as human beings? And we're working so hard that what it's doing is it's not making us uh, more joyful, more um, generous. Uh, it's dividing us. It's making us feel like we're not good enough. It's making us hate others because we, we think we're better than them. There's something about that, that vision that, that fails us. 
Here's another way that stories are being told today online. This is something I see quite common and it's striking to me how common it is these days. But it's the story where somebody who's great is actually dresses down. And so an example of it, uh, Jimmy Fallon seems to do this a lot. You get a band like U2, this historic band, larger than life, now, you know, you know, 30 years of being one of the great musical acts. They put on ordinary clothes, these fake beards, and they go to the New York subway system and they start playing and people are like, oh, here's, these are other buskers, but this is New York. In New York, everybody is great in some way, right? And so, so these guys sound good and there's the drummer with his buckets and there's the singer with his thing. And all of a sudden, Jimmy Fallon pops out for a crowd that was like, well, these guys are, they're, they're common people, but they're great. And Jimmy Fallon shows up and says, ladies and gentlemen, these are not common people. This is you too. And that moment that what you thought was ordinary, but you knew this was not ordinary, is even larger than life. And, and this plays itself out with the, the greatest athlete who they dress up like the old man. And now this basketball star is not Michael Jordan, but you know they think he's just some guy from the neighborhood in a pickup game. And he drops the ball and he fumbles and he trips and then he starts dunking the ball and people are like, holy cow. That storytelling is very interesting. And you wonder which story is more like the Christian story. I think modern day religion, so therefore how we think of the Christian story is like the Disney story. There's gotta be something better. And so let's just work for it. Nobody blow the cover. Let's just keep following the rules and, and let's just enjoy the idea that life is better than it is. And, and that's not sustainable. And that's not the Christian story. The Christian story is God is far better than you can imagine. And he comes into the world. And when he came as Jesus, people realized there was something extraordinary, but they didn't know what it was. And when his glory started to come out, then all of a sudden people were changed. And you think of which paradigm will change you for life. And I think the first paradigm is how many people are living, where we say we want to be larger than life. We want to create these rules. But what we do is we create a way of being that says we're always watching cynically for what's when the door closes, we want to put our ear to the door because we're expecting that the person who just stood with us with their royalty and dignity, when they close the door, they're just like us. They're a rotten person. And so we want to find that person out. And so the story we tell today creates suspicion, cynicism, fake news is our concern. We're always trying to unmask the person trying to dupe us. And in our striving for morality in a better world, we're actually creating a world that's harder to sustain. What happens to, the, to watching these videos where you're seeing these old men and these ordinary musicians showing up? My guess is at the basketball courts across the street from me in Morningside Park, if a 75-year-old guy showed up and said, I want to play, I imagine half the people there would be like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, this might be Magic Johnson. We don't know. And there's a sense in which there's a paradigm shift, which is our ordinary lives mean that, that at any moment something extraordinary might happen. And that's the shift of the Christian life, the, the life that says if God is real, we're no longer going around trying to create this great universe that we've, we're never convinced of. And so we're always failing. We never feel good enough. And we're always disappointed. And we're always watching out for who we can turn against. Instead, it says, if the holy has come in, you exist in this common world, but you're being repurposed. You're no longer common. If God has made you clean, let no one call you common. Your life is now extraordinary because you know God. And you're looking for the holy in this world. And what it means is now you don't know if any person you ever encounter is common. And how will that change things? How will that change whether or not your assumption is, I'm always waiting for this person to expose their rottenness 
Or if you say, but if I'm looking to God and trying to be like God, I'm always watching for what God will do that's greater than what I can imagine. That's the Christian vision for how you live a holy life. It's what makes you moral. Peter Kreeft says, look, we, we give up. We, we rise to these great occasions, but over time you get tired. How do you keep doing something good? Well, when you know that God is watching and it matters, and you don't care if God will reward you, you have a new purpose in life. Your purpose is to look at the common with the eyes of faith and, and to inhabit God's holiness. You have the Holy Spirit if you believe the gospel message about Jesus. You are no longer a common person. Why would you live a common life? Why would earning money be your greatest aspiration or being happy be the greatest thing you could strive for? But isn't there something so much greater that if God has come into this world and has sent us into the world, so pursue holiness without which nobody will see God. But, but if we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we've been welcomed in, we see nobody as unholy. Think about how that will help the church navigate our current social divisions. Peter makes clear, is there any category of person that you would look at and say, this person is common? Well, not if God might call that person. And God, we are told, calls people from every category. And therefore, there, we should not assume anybody is common. And what does it mean for the church to go into the world with a vision to be generous and to be moral and to be faithful? It's to see people with a very different way if we've seen something of the glory of God. That will, that will change us to be uncommon people. And so I want to encourage you to, to strive to live a holy life this week. Look for God. Walk by the Spirit. Trust Him. He will, he will act, and if you don't see what he's doing, trust that he will see what you're doing. So act boldly. Let me pray for us. Our Father, this is a common gathering. We, we are people born into this world, but it's a holy gathering because it's you who assembles us. It's you who have given us your word, and you who call us. It's you who send your spirit. It's you who cleanse us from our sin. It's you who show us that there's a better way. And so, Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see that better way, to see the greatness of Jesus Christ who became unclean, and to understand the truth of that vision, that, that his suffering was for the cleansing of our own sin, and for the renewing of our own spirits, and for the moving from us, us from common to holy. Lord, empower us by that spirit to live extraordinary lives, and help us in our exhaustion, in our tiredness, in our fear, and in our cynicism to live by faith, to look for you and your glory and greatness and to, to walk each day trusting when we don't understand that when we act in faith, you will do something. And if you don't see what we do, uh, if we don't see what you do, we trust you will see what we do. So help us to be satisfied that living for your glory is a good way to live. Do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.